Right, do you want to know about the future? Well, guess what? Today's guest on the show is epic. So let's cue the music. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast. It's funny saying the Spencer Lodge podcast when it's my podcast. It's a bit weird. But anyway, welcome to the show. Okay, today's guest, someone I think that's going to add some massive value to you. We've got loads of discussions around the future, but also the present today as well. Ian Khan, a CNN-featured technology futurist, three times TEDx speaker, director of highly acclaimed documentary Blockchain City, best-selling author of Seven Axioms of Value Creation, a contributor of multiple industry publications, including McGraw-Hill and Forbes. He's also a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, the National Speaker Association, the Association of Professional... Hold on a minute, I'm going to get this up. Okay, the Association of, 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 of Professional Futurists and the Project Management Institute, Chief Futurist at Boutique Future Research Firm Futuracy. Ian's one of the most widely quoted experts on blockchain. Yes, blockchain on the podcast. Okay, he's also the creator of Future Readiness Score, a revolutionary methodology to help organizations use database scientific approach to profitability and success. Oh, this is going to be good. Okay, Ian's the author of eight books. The guy must be mad to write that many books. And there's two more books in the works. Two more? Okay, books in the works to be released by mid-2020. He's also working on his second documentary, a film on artificial intelligence. That's something I'm really interested in. Okay, to be released early in 2020. Ian has spent the majority of his career working within ecosystems of SAP, Microsoft, and others, and now helps organizations around the world reach their potential by working on seven key areas in business. He's also an adjunct professor for ESSAD, okay, developing technology education curriculum for higher education executive learners. Wow, and it goes on. Considered to be one of today's most revolutionary speakers, Ian is a leading keynote speaker and is spoken on the same platform as President Obama, Amadeab, Diab, Carlos Severes, Daniel Habib, Bruce Dickinson, and others. And not only that, he's from Kashmir, which is just down the road. Ian, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. Spencer, thank you. You make me sound so good. I really am falling in love with myself, but thank you, man. Thanks for that. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. What an introduction. Look, um, first of all, I really appreciate you taking time to come on the show. There's a lot of people that are having to do their podcasts, no, not face-to-face, but on Zoom at the moment. It's something that I wasn't doing at all before because I'd like just to be in the room with somebody and to sit and brainstorm and let things organically grow. But hopefully we can give our audience today some really interesting stuff to think about regarding what you do and how you do it. So let's just start off. What is a futurist? So uh, a futurist is someone who can um, talk about tomorrow, can talk about unlocking your potential, can talk about doing things better. As a futurist, you sometimes get away by talking about things that nobody understands, but because you have the label of a futurist, you can just say those things. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, a futurist is someone who, who, who can help understand tomorrow. And, and I go against the definition that, you know, it's somebody who can predict the future and you have a crystal ball in front of you. It's none of that. It's none of that. Futurists purely work on a majority of those that I know. Futurists work on information and data that's available out to all of us. 
uh, but they're able to translate that into, into actionable information. Uh, and that's what I do uh, as a futurist is help my audiences, customers, clients, um, uh, viewers, uh, you know, r realize the potential in the future or the challenges of the future uh, and take action on those things so that their lives and our lives can be better. Wow. Now, that means that, that if I interpret that correctly, that means that every single CEO of every company, every entrepreneur, every solopreneur, um, anyone who's responsible for any organization needs to be part futurist then. Absolutely. It, see, uh, Spencer, it's, it's, it's saying um, thinker. We all are thinkers. We all think. We all have a mind and a capability of, of understanding the world. But then you say leading thinker, thought leader, and that's where the differentiation occurs with people who are amazing and Nobel laureates and so on, is how do you push yourself to, to question things as they are, to, to object to things that you oppose? Um, I really believe everybody is a futurist. Everybody can be a futurist. If you're thinking about tomorrow and your life and your, uh, your, your future, you are a futurist. But how much of that are you engaged and how much of that are you doing consciously and deliberately is, is what is what needs to be done. Interesting point. So let's take the present and see how the present is going to, because everyone's talking about it. There's nothing else that's on anybody's minds at the moment. And this, this, uh, this, this is going to be going out in the next couple of days. So while this is on everybody's mind, the present, the problem, the COVID-19, the coronavirus, the situation that we face ourselves in, how does someone with your level of intellect and experience read this situation? So COVID-19 is a terrible thing that's happening to all of us. And the, the human toll that it's taking and people are dying in different parts of the world is not nice. This is something nobody should um, be happy about. And definitely it's something we all are disturbed about. Uh, the changes uh, that COVID-19 is bringing to the world is mind-blowing. The way people are now working from home, as an example, and realizing this new way of work that they've never done before is, is mind-blowing. Check out LinkedIn, check out Twitter, Facebook, all your social media, and you'll see people dancing and people are enjoying life with their kids and they're just doing all these different things that you wouldn't see people doing. Um, I don't see that people being silly, but they're being who they are, they're expressing themselves, they're communicating to the world that, hey, I'm in this environment and I'm making the best of it and I'm, I'm doing whatever I can to be happy. I think we're exploring a new dimension in the human, um, you know, in humanity, in our history. Um, and over the last one or 200 years, we've enslaved ourselves to, to a desk and we call it work and we, we go to work and we come back from work, but we forget that inside of all of that uh, is, is, an, is an entity, is a being, is a human who's got emotions, who's got aspirations. And so our connection with work is being questioned because of COVID-19. Um, organizations, I'm not going to talk, talk too much about profitability. Of course, uh, organizations and companies and, and vendors and all of that, the whole world is at a standstill right now because of the inconvenience that COVID-19 is bringing to business, but this is a great time for all of us to reflect upon who we are and, and what we are becoming as part of having this time to ourselves and thinking about what we do best, what we should do, reevaluating our lives right now. Aren't we all doing that? We're all reevaluating our lives because tell me something, 
haven't you thought that what if you get COVID-19 and something happens to you, right? We all are thinking that. And so COVID-19 has put us all in a position of re-evaluation of our lives. And that is coming out in many different ways. All those people that are sat there either going to be made redundant or those people that are sat there thinking about the jobs they hate now have a chance to start thinking about maybe the job that they'd like to do, the job that will make them happy as opposed to trudging through life doing something they just don't love. Yeah. I think that... I, <coughs> I, I don't think people should be afraid of change. And change, this is, this is one conversation that we, we all should have every day uh, with ourselves, first of all, is our acceptance of change. People are resistant to change. People don't want to change. We're comfortable doing what we do. We're happy in our own habits, our life. Uh, but when change happens and that change knocks at the door, which is COVID-19 right now, uh, we struggle because we're not ready for it. Uh, and if you're, but here's the thing, if you're ready for change, everything is going to go in your favor. So people who are afraid of losing their jobs right now, I, I say to them, don't be afraid of it. If, if this is what somebody else decides for you, the, the organization, the corporation, uh, why do you hold yourself um, to it? Start exploring what you can do, what your capabilities are, how, how you could add value to the world in a, in a different way. Uh, and so have a little bit more confidence. And this is a great time to do that. Very interesting. Let's talk about how, how the financial world is impacted by this. We see uh, financial bailouts from governments and $2 trillion in the United States and various numbers of billions and billions around the world um, in the United Kingdom, worried about making sure that they put money into the hands of the consumer so that they can continue to exist. And the United States, that, that kind of plan is being put together as well. Where does all this money come from and what's going to happen to the future of money, do you think? So money is such an interesting thing. Uh, governments depend on money. Uh, corporations, large corporations depend on money. The world runs on money. And if we had no money, uh, we, would be, we would, would be in a big fix. Uh, so we can't ignore uh, the presence of money in our lives. And that's why people are also afraid of losing their jobs because then they, get, they don't get access to the money that creates the comforts of life for them. Um, right now, we're in some of the world's biggest bailouts, where uh, governments are bailing out in the United States and Canada, uh, UK, everywhere governments are trying to support economies so that they don't go into a recession. And by all means, we're, I think we're already in recession. It really depends on how you think about a recession. Uh, but um, we're already uh, not doing too well. And I would be surprised if markets tank and, and things go uh, really, really south. But I don't think that's going to happen. Right now, what governments are doing is support the basic infrastructure of all, all the employee base, the professional base that they have. Um, uh, funding within governments and the monetary system is really deeply connected with, with taxation and how uh, countries derive revenue. So there's all of these different economic connections that, that exist. I mean, on the other hand, if you look at some of the spending that countries do, look at the United States, they spend trillions of dollars on war every year, on, on missiles, on um, doing things in parts of the world where they shouldn't be. And so when you look in the, the, that context, the money they're spending out right now, they're spending on bailouts right now is, is really not that much. Um, 
I really believe that this period of instability, this uh, uh, bailout period will, will, on, will go on for the next few months where governments will support their local economies. Um, I don't foresee that COVID-19 will last for a long time, maybe the next, uh, maybe until the end of, end of summer this year, until July before things start getting better, but recovery will take time because we can't just bounce back to everything as it was. Um, the, the post effects of COVID will still be there for, for I would say, but until the next year. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what else the world reacts to, what the business community reacts to, and how uh, we start bouncing back from this. We obviously, we obviously saw in the last recession, there were lots of companies that um, were founded in the last recession that are now global conglomerates now, whether that be Uber, Airbnb, I think WhatsApp around that time, Slack and others came out of the, the recession. I think it gets people to to be more creative and think a bit harder when these times come. And I, I think there's only positive when it comes to that. So you spend time helping businesses to look to the future and to help them think about ways to grow. There's going to be a lot of companies now that are going to be thinking, what are our next steps and how do we move forward? Can you tell me about what the seven axioms are, how they work and how that brings value to organizations? So the seven axioms is, um, uh, is a business philosophy and methodology that I've been teaching for uh, the last uh, 20 years. Um, I am working on a book that's coming out this year on the future readiness score, which is connected with the seven axioms. Uh, the seven axioms are seven categories of, uh, of action, of, um, of influence that we as businesses, as organizations uh, need to uh, work on in order to create a better future. This includes um, things such as engagement. We live in an era where engagement is changing, where communication is changing, the way we communicate the value our products and services bring to customers changes. Uh, engagement also has your sales and marketing strategies. It also has your uh, internal and external communication strategies. So when you look at all of these different things, we categorize it under engagement um, and, and help uh, organizations understand that uh, the role of engagement is much different today than it was um, five or 10 years ago. Uh, look at COVID-19 right now. We all are glued to our cell phones and our devices looking for information, and, and, and we are getting access to all of that information really rapidly. In fact, there's uh, too much information. Uh, but, but that's what engagement is all about, is communication and how do you inform others? Uh, podcasts are a great way of engagement. And many organizations don't uh, leverage all of these platforms and opportunities to reach out to their customers. They're still in their traditional ways of thinking, traditional, traditional ways of sales and marketing. Um, and so when we, uh, within the seven axioms, when you talk about engagement, it's this whole big piece of how, as an organization, can you um, 10x or 100x your impact on the world? Um, other things within the seven axioms framework are uh, collaboration, uh, education, and learning. We are in an era of unprecedented change, and unless you're not learning every single day about something, you're just digging your own um, grave, metaphorically speaking. Uh, it's essential for anyone who wants to succeed, who wants to surpass their current circumstances, who wants to have a better tomorrow and a better future, to access learning and education in any way they can, whether it's reading a book, um, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, enrolling for an online course with edX or Coursera or one of the online universities. Uh, but there's so much opportunity available for us to actively change our life that it's, um, it's, 
it's mind-boggling but do we do that do organizations do that uh, they don't and, and many of them just struggle with creating this change um, other portions and parts within uh, areas within the seven axioms are uh, is people uh, we live in an era in an era where uh, five different generations of people are in the workplace and uh, the newer generations coming into work are putting a lot of pressure on organizations to change how they work with people, how they um, acknowledge their contribution, how they are criticized. And we always talk about millennials uh, being different and millennials um, don't pay attention. I think millennials are awesome and they're amazing, but they've got a specific requirement to be amazing. They, they've, they're connected to um, a, different, a val different value system that organizations need to adapt to now. And that's what the seven axioms addresses is how do organizations enable processes and, uh, and things within their work to sustain and to flourish and to thrive. Uh, and so the seven uh, different areas uh, cater to seven different things uh, that organizations must work on in order to change what they do, to, to impact the world in a larger way, uh, and to create a tremendous amount of value more than they would have bargained for. Interesting. Now you talk a bit about the blockchain and we have heard, you know, crypto and Bitcoin and all of the other ones, because there was more than I can even think to mention now. Uh, are we going to get to a stage where we stop using cash? I think we're, we're slowly understanding the impact of digitization. It's taking much slower. The, 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 the pace of acceptance and adoption is much slower than you would anticipate. Um, of course, in some circles, you know, the world will change tomorrow morning and we all will be cashless and uh, digital currencies will take over. But, but even things like a debit card, which is a touchless debit card, it's going to take about a decade before everybody has it or uh, the emergence of uh, credit cards. It took a couple of decades before we started seeing the mass adoption of credit cards as an example. Um, digital currencies are definitely here as an idea, as a concept, but in terms of changing the currency of your and, and the monetary system of your country, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a while because it's not easy. Mo the monetary systems of nations are interconnected. Uh, with different government entities. They're interconnected with the global economy. So it's not easy to make that change. If you and I were to make a country tomorrow uh, and where five people live, it would be very easy to implement a fully cashless society and a digital society. But in the real world, it's far too complex. It's, it's very, very complex. So I don't anticipate a fully digital currency world anytime in the next two to five to seven to 10, 10 years maybe. But will we see a lot of countries and nations accepting digital currencies? Maybe in the next 10 years, yes, central governments, central banks will maybe have a component of digital currencies and not 100% that too. Do you think with the conspiracy theorists talking about the Rothschilds or the Rockefellers, maybe if they had their own cryptocurrency, maybe it would come out a bit quicker? It's possible. <laughs> it's possible, but for uh, there's so many conspiracy theories out there. Um, uh, I think they'll have a tough time. They might have a tough time doing that, given the scale of how economies world work right now. I mean, uh, look at some of the largest markets in the world, China and India. I think it's easier 
um, for nations like that to come out with a currency where there's a lot of government control on on everything uh, to to do things like that. But in a in a 100% democracy, democrat, uh, democratized world, um, it might be it might be a little bit difficult. A guy like you has done so many things and continues to do so much. What what gets you out of bed every day? What excites you? Is it getting up, doing a a, a TED talk? Is it is it lecturing? Is it is it learning and studying? Is it having an impact in a business? What what really is is the most exciting thing about what you do? I think it's about the fact of um, I think it's about confronting change, uh, and not just for myself, but for the people that I serve. Uh, it's about doing something different. It's about uh, today. It's about having this conversation with you. Uh, and perhaps reaching other people who can start thinking differently. I, I, I think for me, it's a, the keyword would be different. It would be what is different today? What can I do differently today um, and, and change the world in some way? And that happens in so many different ways for me, whether it's uh, writing a book or making a documentary or being part of a project that's so exciting. Uh, there's always things happening and um, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for, for all the things that are, that are out there right now. Tell me a bit about your childhood. What was it like growing up? Where did you grow up and what was it like? What, what, was, your, what, what was your mom and dad like? And... Uh, nobody's asked me that question before, but uh, it's really interesting. Uh, I was born in Kashmir, uh, a tiny dot in between India, Pakistan and China. Uh, and it was really one of the most awesome places to be born in, really beautiful, um, really, really, really amazing in terms of the, your surroundings. Um, my childhood was, uh, was great. My dad um, was a professional. He worked with the government. He was an engineer. Uh, and my uh, wife took care of uh, me and my brothers. Uh, and so life was great until I was in, uh, I would say, grade seven, six or seven um, because that's when uh, a revolution took place in Kashmir. It was a political revolution, uh, moved into, uh, escalated into armed conflict. And after that, it was just downhill because uh, exactly what is happening right now with COVID-19 happened with all the people of Kashmir. They were, and it's still happening with them, uh, is um, the political uncertainty. Uh, you couldn't go out of your home you didn't know what tomorrow would bring. So a lot of uncertainty, a lot of change, really rapidly uh, coming towards you. Uh, and that really changed the way I started thinking about life, uh, going from a, a free country like we were right now, two months ago, everybody across the world was in a different state of mind, to being where we are right now, closed off, you can meet people, social distancing, uh, and add on top of that 10 more layers of um, oppression or, or political uncertainty or armed conflict. So it was a lot to deal with. Um, but those years growing up in, in Kashmir really built um, a lot of courage into me, a lot of resilience, uh, and helped me go above and beyond what normal life was giving me, is, was to think about, hey, what could I do in the future? And what, how can tomorrow be different? And, and have those lessons in life where you're living those lessons as experiences. Um, I uh, then moved on, uh, did different things in life. I lived in the Middle East for about uh, a decade or so. Uh, right Where? now, I, uh, in, in Bahrain. So right, okay. right next door to, uh, to Dubai. Yeah. Uh, but now I am, uh, yeah, I'm primarily based out of Toronto now. I have an amazing family. I've got a couple of kids. 
And um, yeah, it's uh, it's great. I work through New York, Dubai, and uh, Toronto, so I'm I'm quite literally traveling a lot. Um, uh, I'm on stages a lot, so life has really dramatically changed for me over the last uh, two decades or so. Uh, but I I I love communicating that change that I went through consistently, but it was even before COVID-19 is how much we need to change the way we think, adapt to the world around us in order to see something better. And that's, that's the mission that I'm on. I used to be in wealth management many years ago. And before I lived in Dubai, I was in, I've lived in 10 countries, but I was in Holland before I was in Dubai. And I remember one of my corporate clients was ABN AMRO, which is one of the, the big Dutch banks. And I, and I met this guy to talk to him about his money one day and his business card said he was head of change management. And I'm like, what's that? He said, well, we have to make changes. And when we make changes, it's my job to implement the changes and make sure that the, the, the staff in various departments are on board with it. And I started thinking to myself, I can't believe there's a job for change management because I was young. Okay. So I was, you know, for me being nimble was part of life. And so to think that there was someone in change management. And then, then I started to, to take an interest in understanding what that really meant. And so the fact that you, you talk about change, why is it that the human psyche is so resistant to change? I think we just find comfort in, uh, in conformity. We just find life, uh, you know, when things are going okay, we, why would you necessarily want to change things? We're comfortable. We've found our soft spot. Uh, we don't want to disrupt what we love doing, whether it's, you know, change in any area of our life, whether it's, it's drinking sodas to enjoying a certain amount of food or, or doing an activity. It's, it's, it's across the board. Um, I really find speaking with leaders, executives, uh, and people that I, I work with and my, my clients uh, that managing change for themselves and for their teams and their organizations is the biggest challenge of all. This is the biggest number one challenge for everybody is change management because it translates into how do you get people to think? How do you get your teams to act? What results does that drive for your organization? And so if we all were able to master change management, I think we would all be superheroes. But that, that leans into, you know, you talk about people being comfortable and not wanting to get, you know, into a place where they're uncomfortable. But if it's changed for the better, that's one thing. But I suppose it's, it's habits as well, isn't it? You know, the guy that doesn't give up smoking or the guy that doesn't lose the weight and so on. We just, even if we're uncomfortable, we're very resistant to change. Even if, it, even if where we are is painful we're resistant to change. And there are many examples of that in society, aren't there? So there it's, are. it's really kind of, it's deep rooted, isn't it? Deep rooted in, in some part of our consciousness. I think it has a huge connection with the inability to love your tomorrow. And what I, what I mean when I say that is when you've got an amazing plan for tomorrow, when uh -huh. you plan your life, and you plan your future and you say, hey, next year I want to be 20 pounds, weighing 20 pounds less. Or one year from now, I want to make an extra million dollars. Like all these aspirational things and goals that you have for tomorrow, they are literally drivers for people to take action. Now, when you have no goals, 
when you don't believe in the awesomeness that you can have in the future, you don't take action because you're not inspired by anything that you foresee. And this is going back to being a futurist for your own self is you don't see a tomorrow that's brighter. You, and you're not inspired to take action. You'll just sit there and watch another movie, watch another show on Netflix and eat chips and you know, drink pop because you don't want to, you don't see yourself running that marathon uh, one year from now. And that's what we need to do. We need to change how we perceive our future. And the first step to doing that is literally just thinking about a better tomorrow. It's really framing yourself visualizing yourself and i'm not talking about some magic voodoo uh, philosophy <laughs> here i'm just talking about practically changing your life is shake yourself up by visualizing yourself doing things better and having goals that you want to achieve having tasks that you will subsequently do to achieve those goals um, i recently read a book and it had this whole categorization of how do you actually create a tomorrow? How do you break down the large things in life, you know, the five to 10 year things into smaller actionable items, you know, one year, six months, three months. And then how do you break that down into actions? So once you start dreaming, once you start becoming a futurist or a dreamer, and by all means, I support daydreaming. You should daydream as much as you want to, because that's how the world has changed and how your life can change. After you do that, you can start actioning these things and you will end up having an amazing life uh, and you will be looked upon as a success and so on and so forth. Uh, you, so I think we, we, we need to start dreaming. Do you think that, okay, or are there any categories, if you take, if you take an organization from the top down, is, is there more resistance to, to change on C-suite, but above C-suite, less resistance to change typically? Or generally, is, is, there, is there any form of code around that, basically, is what I'm trying to ask? No, there is no code uh, within an organization. But what I have observed 20 years in uh, working and, and uh, serving different industries is that there's a huge impact of what happens at the top. How do, does your leadership behave? How do leaders within the organization behave and that's everybody else follows. So for companies such as um, uh, Microsoft or, or IBM or um, any large organization that's super successful, it is the impact what leaders have on the organization, how they inspire people to take action, how they create goals and how they drive teams. And so a lot of onus for change within organization falls on leadership. Uh, and leaders like anybody else have um, uh, a million things to do they have to prioritize things. They have to work with sales, with marketing, with operations. And so the task of leaders and CEOs is not easy. And it really depends on how much they work on their A game to learn more to, uh, and, and this is, uh, these are insights that I'm sharing because I speak to a lot of C-level uh, leaders is how do they absorb information and how much of that are they able to put into action and lead their teams. Um, everybody is resistant to change, but the goals people have for organizations, for themselves, is what drives people to take action. And it's, so it's really, really important to, to create goals and tasks and, go, and, and big, these big aspirational things and then start executing on them. So no, to answer your question, there's no specific formula, but a lot depends on how people lead. My, my last question, um, 
Simon Sinek talks about times like this where communicating with your staff and getting the focus on trying to keep your staff employed with everybody working together to, to, to lessen the load, but to increase the effort um, is the right way for a business. And, and other leaders believe it's you've got to get rid of some people now so that you can save people for the future. And when I, when I, when I look at that, there's obviously the whole, I suppose it's almost like the, uh, it's, it's Gary Vaynerchuk versus Simon Sinek a little bit with the theories about how, how you move through a time like this and you embrace um, what's going to happen. If you're going to get the most out of the people that work in your organization to move towards the positive, is it better to have the theory of the number one rule in business is to keep the business going or the number one rule in business, okay, is to get the people to keep the people within the business so that they can grow the business through the longer term? Um, and it's such a good question. And uh, when you compare Gary uh, Vee with uh, Simon Sinek, it's two different things. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of either of them, but I, I do have, um, you know, my own opinion about their own approaches. I, I love what the content and uh, the philosophy that Gary has, it's, it's really actionable. It's really, you know, take this action and hustle and do whatever you can. So it's a lot um, targeted a lot towards entrepreneurs and people who are starting up and people who want to just take action and they're not taking action and how they should hustle. I love his message. It's really amazing. If you want, if you're a young person who wants to take action and you're, you're, you're finding for, or you're looking for inspiration. Uh, Simon, on the other hand, tends to talk a lot about, um, traditional things and how, you know, why should leaders do that? And why should, um, I'm not a super fan, but I, I do respect uh, the work he does. My own opinion is, um, is, and the question becomes, is who are your stakeholders? Organizations and, and large corporations and listed organizations um, have a huge responsibility on their stakeholders. They have a huge um, they've got to respond to the needs of the stakeholders, people who have invested in these companies. Uh, and as an, as an investor, if I put $10 billion in a company, that company better tell me what's going on. So that's a very financial um, outlook on, on industry and, and business. But then there's people like, uh, like Richard Branson, as an example, who says that uh, take care of your people and they will take care of your customers, right? Focus on your people and focus on who is within your organization and things will work out. So as a leader, again, like I said before, the job of the task of leaders is not easy because they've got to be able to manage the philosophy with which the company runs and answer to stakeholders uh, as they need to be uh, answered to. I really believe it's a delicate balance. It's a delicate balance between um, taking care of people and taking care of stakeholders. I really believe leaders today should, num their one, number one priority should be the well-being of people because ultimately, and I agree with uh, Richard Branson on this, is once you start taking care of people, they will take care of business and stakeholders will understand why you took certain steps and measures to do whatever you need to do. Uh, as a leader, also, you need to make sure that people who work for you and work with you are doing what they should be doing. Uh, and many times we see people trapped in jobs where they do not excel, uh, but this is not their true calling. So as a leader, you've got to guide people into doing things that they're not doing and maybe even letting them go and letting them free to do what they want to do. Um, and that's the exciting part of, 
of management theory is how, and, and it's going more towards this uh, these days, is how do you get people to live the life they want to live, to go for their calling and so on. Um, I really see a mixed category of models. A majority of the world is financially driven. It's all about stakeholders when it's about large companies. But then the companies like Virgin are awesome as well, who take care of people. Many others do as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, that's another way of um, being successful. Looking to what we should do with the future with businesses and whatnot, we see yesterday on the news that Zoom, which we're on right now, is worth more than all of the American airlines combined together um, as a business, which is quite, a, I thought that was quite an interesting stat yeah. when it came out. So Zoom's value is more than every American airline put together. It's incredible. Isn't it's incredible. it? Yeah. And uh, by the way, airlines are doing uh, poorly. Airlines are tanking. They're crashing. They've laid, out, laid, laid off 80, 90% of their employees. Flights are being grounded. And, and what I, I foresee this as just a transitionary phase. See, the, the world as it is, it goes through its ups and downs. Uh, the Egyptian civilization was at the peak of everything 5,000 years ago, and then they went down, and then the Sumerians came, and then the Babylonians. It's, it's a cycle. The world follows a cycle. Um, but I think the cycles are shorter now. They're much, much shorter. So maybe the next couple of years uh, will be a good time for airlines to make a comeback. I think right after COVID-19 is done, uh, people will start traveling because people are hungry for business, for change. Um, events will start happening again. And many of those that are postponed now uh, are happening at the end of the year. So there's a lot more that will happen as soon as things come back. And as humans, as people, we life thrives uh, when you give it an opportunity, you know, uh, it, and that's that's what, what the world is all about. That's what humanity is all about. Um, I'm looking forward to the COVID-19 bounce back uh, and how people bounce back from this challenge and realize their potential and work harder and create a better future for themselves. And organizations do things differently to change the world in a different way. So I'm definitely looking for the positive stuff that comes out of this entire COVID-19. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the show. How can people follow you? Spencer, I am stoked to be here. Thank you so much for having me, first of all, and all your audiences listening to me. Uh, they can find me on my website, iankhan, I-A-N-K-H-A-N.com. Uh, and there's tons of resources there uh, uh, on social media. I'm on Ian Khan Futurist on every single platform. Uh, and uh, I'd love to uh, be there, support them, uh, and be of value, if, if at all. Excellent stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, there you go. What a great guy. So much to take from such a, uh, an interview with somebody that's got a different perspective, someone that understands things that maybe some of us don't think about and busy helping organizations. And maybe to remind you that, do you know what? Maybe you're not so different to that CEO of that company in your building. Maybe you're not so different to that C-suite group of people. Maybe we're all the same in many different ways but an optimistic look at COVID-19 as well. And that's always positive for all of us. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure you leave us a uh, five-star rating on SoundCloud and Spotify. If you want to leave us some recommendations on iTunes, then I'd love you to do so as well. But for now, hopefully you've enjoyed the show. Check out the next shows coming up. There's loads more thick and fast. We're using Zoom like crazy. So they'll be coming to you very quickly. I'll see you soon, folks. Take care and whatever you do, make sure you get out there and make it happen. Let's <laughs> go.